Isaiah 53 is our text this morning. Grab a Bible somewhere if you can, please. Put a Bible in front of you this morning and open to Isaiah 53. This chapter is the final passage of four passages about the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh. And these passages, these four chapters, chapters 42, 49, 50, and 53, essentially, at the end of 52 and into, at the end of 53, these four passages present to us an absolutely astounding prophecy. And remember that these texts were written seven centuries before the birth of Jesus Christ. But they present an astounding prophecy in which they detail in order this chapter in particular, chapter 53, details in order Jesus growing up, verse 2, his earthly ministry, including pain and suffering and rejection by his people, verses 3 and 4, his trials and execution, verses 5 through 8, his burial, verse 9, his resurrection, verses 10 and 11, and his exaltation, verse 12. I mean, it's just unfolded exactly that orderly, set down in front of God's people for all of those hundreds of years before he came into the world. And this is a really an astounding prophecy. Much of this is written in the past tense, up until verse 10 anyway. And that is because it is written from the standpoint, from the viewpoint of a people who are looking back on him in whom they did not believe, but now they've had, by God's mercy, a change of heart about him. And they are bearing testimony to who this person truly is. There is evidence that this passage, Isaiah 53, was interpreted by Jewish oral tradition even years before our Savior came as a messianic passage, a passage that was a prophecy of the Messiah. But today, this chapter is mostly ignored by the Jews. If you look up on the internet the synagogue weekly readings. There's a, there's a reading from the law, from the Torah, from the book, books of Moses, and there is a reading from the prophets that is read in synagogue every week. If you look that up, you'll discover that Isaiah 53 is never read in the synagogue, ever, in terms of those regular readings. It's not read on the weekly Sabbath readings. It's not read in the readings that are scheduled for special holy days, the high holy days, it's just not there. These um, readings that come from the Torah and from the prophets, the readings from the prophets are the Haftarah. No one knows for sure when they were first um, organized, these particular readings to be done on these particular days, but um, the tradition of weekly readings from the Scripture are older than Christ, our Savior. But these current readings, this current reading plan, goes back for centuries. And in that, Isaiah 53 is never heard in the synagogue. 
Now, we usually think of Isaiah 53 as a unit, but really the chapter, the, the, the unit, the literary unit, as you know now, starts back in chapter 52, verse 12, right, verse 12, verse 13, sorry. After chapter 52, verse 13, and it goes all the way through chapter 53, through the end of chapter 53. And here's why that's important. Three weeks ago, um, August the 19th, Saturday, August the 19th, the Sabbath for the Jews, as they understand it, the weekly Haftarah reading, the reading from the prophets, was Isaiah 51, verse 12, through 52, excuse me, 51, verse 1, through 52, verse 12. In other words, right, do you see where the reading stops? Like right before this passage. And where do you think the following Sabbaths Haftarah reading begins? It begins Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. And in fact, over a seven-week period, the Sabbath Haftarah readings cover Isaiah 49, 50, 51, 52, up through verse 12, then 54, 55, and 56. Almost as if Isaiah 53 has been um, intentionally excised from that reading. And even though they publicly read a portion of these servant songs, they stop right before what is clearly the final climax of them all and then pick up immediately after them. And of course, keep in mind that Christians have been arguing for the identity of the Messiah as Jesus of Nazareth from this specific passage for centuries. This has been going on. So, you know, whether this is a deliberate plan on the part of people or a scheme of the devil or just part of God's providential blinding of these people, the fact is that this passage has stood as a powerful testimony to Jesus, the Messiah. We've come now to that portion of this chapter where the Lord focuses in on the trials, the death, and the burial of the Messiah, the servant of the Lord. And so let's begin our reading in verse 7, and we'll just read up through the beginning of verse 10, which is the turning point in this chapter. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And I just want you to notice by way of introduction to this text that the passage is framed, beginning and the end, with references to the servant's mouth. Right? Look in verse 7. 
Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted and he opened not his mouth. And then the end of the verse, and it goes back to that, he, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 7. Then if you go to the end of verse 9, it records that there was no deceit in his mouth. This servant would be one who would not argue and protest and threaten and speak deceitfully in order to try to extricate himself from his situation and get himself out of this unjust treatment. So I want to preach to you this morning on the silent suffering of the servant. And rather than commenting, as I I typically try to do, on these verses kind of in order, I just want to take them as a sort of unit, because this is a part of a larger whole, and we're really kind of narrowing our look down in a granular way. So I want to just pick out the, 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 the central ideas, the important elements of revelation that are found in these few verses, and there are five of them. And the first is the context in which these events would play out. To us is revealed the context in which these events would play out. And you see this in verse 8. So just go ahead and look down there. And and notice it says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. The word oppression is the word for being um, restrained. So some, some versions might translate it imprisoned or something like that. He, he, was, he would be restrained. And the word judgment is the word for a legal judgment, a, a verdict. And so the context here is judicial. We're talking about a legal hearing, a legal trial. This is the context in which these events will unfold. And the trial and is going to end up in his, verse 8, being taken away being taken away, which is probably a reference to being taken away to be executed. This is the way it's used in Proverbs 24, rescue those who are, quote, being taken away to death. So he would be restrained. There would be a legal situation in which he would find this verdict pronounced and he would be taken away to be executed. Now, the New Testament historians of Jesus' life, the writers of the four Gospels, record that after Jesus was arrested in the garden, John chapter 18, they took him and they bound him and they led him away. And Jesus actually endured six different trials or hearings or or sessions of the trial that he, the trials that he endured. There really were two sort of main trials. There was a a Jewish one, a kind of ecclesiastical trial, and then there was the Roman civil trial. And each of these involved several um, stages. The first, when he was captured, when he was um, taken, when he gave himself up and he was taken from the garden over, he was taken originally to the home of Annas, who was the father-in-law of the high priest, John chapter 18, verse 13 tells us. Then after that, he was taken to a hearing before the high priest Caiaphas and an informal meeting of the Sanhedrin that was gathered in the middle of the night, John 18, 24. 
And then in the morning, in order to give this trial some sense of um, legality and credibility, they officially charged him before the entire Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, and that's recorded in Luke 22, 23. But then because the Jews had no authority to put a man to death, they had to take this matter to the Roman authorities. And so he was taken to the Roman courts. First of all, the Pilate, who was the Roman uh, procurator or, or the governor of the area of Judea and that surrounding area where Jesus was captured down in Jerusalem or where he was put on trial in Jerusalem, rather. Um, then he was taken to Herod, Herod Antipas. This was the local ruler from up in the Galilee where Jesus was actually from. And Pilate was anxious to get rid of Jesus and to put him off on someone else. So he sent him over to, over to, over to Herod. And, uh, but then Herod in turn sent him back to Pilate. And Pilate was the one who in fact finally sent him to, sentenced him to death. So the prophecy is recording that this is the context in which these events will play out. This is not just going to be common mistreatment of a person. This is going to be an abuse in the very context of where justice ought to be meted out. But in that judicial context, we see this important truth secondly, that is, it is revealed to us what the servant of the Lord would endure in the course of those trials. And if you would look at verse 7 now, and look at the wording of what is spoken here in terms of what he would endure. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He was oppressed and afflicted. The word oppressed, it's actually not the same word as the word translated oppressed in verse 8. The word oppressed here means to be treated harshly or even to be beaten. And in the book of Exodus, it was actually translated as taskmasters. Do you remember the Egyptian taskmasters who had the people of Israel as their slaves there? And remember the story of the taskmaster beating the Hebrew and Moses and coming and rescuing him? So the prophet writes that Jesus would endure oppression like that. And the gospel accounts record how the Lord of all was slapped and beaten and degraded and flogged by both the Jews and the Romans. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Afflicted. And this is the word that, a word that really carries the idea of someone's being humiliated or degraded through physical abuse. Not just causing pain, but intentionally degrading or humiliating someone in the course of causing that pain. It's even used to translate the idea of rape in the Old Testament. Again, the historical accounts tell us some of the events that happened in the life of Jesus of Nazareth and when he was standing in those trials and they literally spit right in his face. They mocked him, calling him, you know, he, 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 he was claimed to be the king. He was presented as the king. The kingdom is at hand. And so they mocked him. And rather than royal finery for this king, they stripped him and paraded him naked in front of all these soldiers. The only garment they gave him was a red Roman cape 
that sort of stood in for the royal robes. And they crowned him. Oh, yes, they crowned him, all right, weaving together a wreath of thorns and cramming it onto his head. And they put in his hand a royal scepter, for any good king needs a scepter. And they grabbed a broken piece of cane reed and put it in his hand. And then the Roman soldiers would come and take turns bowing before him. Oh, hail, king of the Jews. And then immediately stand up, snatch that cane from his hand and beat him in the head with it and spit in his face. All of this in order to humiliate him, just to show him his powerlessness, that he had to stand there and just endure whatever comes. I mean, it was, it was that kind of ugliness in, not, in the physical abuse. You think of the powerless that, powerlessness that a woman might feel when she is molested. I mean, this is the kind of, you know, this is the kind of idea in this word here. And remember, friends, who he is. He is the perfect servant of God. He is, more than that, this is God himself. This is unthinkable that the very Son of God would give himself that God of gods would give himself to this kind of humiliation and abuse. This is unthinkable. This is unnatural. This is wrong. This is God in the flesh. But he would be oppressed and afflicted. And the third important element in this text that I want to point out is the thing that this passage really focuses on. And that is how the servant would respond to all that he would endure in the context of these trials, these so-called trials. How would he respond? I've already pointed this out, but let's look again at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And the end of verse 9, in all of this, in all that he experienced there, there was no deceit in his mouth. So how did he respond? He responded silently. He suffered silently. Now, that doesn't mean that the Messiah would not speak a single word during any of his interrogations. It means that he wouldn't protest them, that he wouldn't argue, that he wouldn't even perhaps bend the truth, use a little bit of deceit, whatever is necessary in order to try to put himself in the best light to get out from under the consequences of what was happening to him. He would not be like an animal that would kick and bite and scratch and howl, but a, like a sheep that would just submit to what was happening. And this is exactly what the historical records indicate. 
Seven different times the gospel writers take note, seven times the gospel writers take note of his silence in the face of his interrogators. He was silent before Caiaphas, that is the high priest. If you would, I would, I would love you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. So hold your finger here, and let's just look at the record here as it's recorded in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 26, remember that Jesus has already been arrested and he was bound in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was already led to the house of Annas and uh, interrogated there, the Gospel of John tells us. And now verse 57, uh, Matthew 26, verse 57, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Verse 59, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So, In the middle of the night, they're going around through the town, hastily trying to uncover witnesses who would sort of give cover to their predetermined decision. And so that there would be some semblance of adherence to God's law, which, as you know, in Deuteronomy 19 requires that there be two or three witnesses in order for a thing to be established in the case in a case like this. And in fact, it also outlines the fact that if there was a false testimony, if someone's testimony was proven to be false, then that person should receive the same punishment that would have been given to the accused. So that's the law of God. This is a great perversion of that justice, but they're trying to cover it up with a veneer of righteousness. In the middle of verse 60 then, it says, at last, at last, they got two to come forward. And verse 61, they said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Verse 63 But Jesus remained silent. Now, of course, these witnesses are twisting Jesus' words. He never implied that he wanted to go in and destroy the temple, though he did predict its judgment under the wrath of God. But how did Jesus respond? Did he respond with a clarification of his words? Did he defend himself in this? No, the text says he remained silent. In the middle of verse 63, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
And this, of course, is a reference to the vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, this vision of a God-man who is given authority over all the earth. And when Jesus says that, when he makes reference to that in, in terms of himself, verse 65, then the high priest tore his robes and he says, he has uttered blasphemy. I mean, making himself, who is nothing more than a man, out to be equal with God. This is blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Now Jesus could have spoken out and defended himself against these false charges, but he remained silent. But now, when the high priest charges him to answer a direct question under oath, and they're about to scrutinize his answer for some little thing that they can hang on in order to accuse him and to to try to get him to be crucified, when he is under that kind of scrutiny, when he could have been silent now, as we would say, take the fifth, he seals his fate. And notice the irony. It's the testimony of the false witnesses that's designed to convict him that actually ends up doing nothing but vindicating him because they can't even agree. But it's his own testimony, the kind of testimony that is normally meant to vindicate someone that actually seals his conviction. And then verse 67 says they spit in his face and they struck him and some slapped him saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. And they take his silence as vindication. Surely if God has given you divine authority over all of the nations, you can use your prophetic powers to prove who you are and to vindicate yourself. Surely if you're given all authority, you can use your everlasting dominion to stop us from slapping you, but he gave them no answer. He was silent before Caiaphas. And then if you'll just kind of flip the page and look at chapter 27 and verse 11, he is silent also before Pilate. This is his Roman trial. In verse 11, Matthew 27, 11, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Apparently they're just piling up charge after charge, trying to get one to stick, as it were. Don't you hear all of these accusations that they're making against you, Pilate says to him. But verse 14, he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. I'm sure Pilate had had many a defendant stand before him and had dealt with a lot of people who were in a very difficult place, faced with 
certain death, and I'm sure he had never met a man before who did not defend himself with a flurry of words. But here is one who, whose silence just was astounding. And I'm sure he would not have been amazed if Jesus had tried to defend himself by trying to explain what he really meant by what he said. Or accusing the Sanhedrin of a conspiracy, a plot to get him for their own selfish purposes, or pointing out the inconsistencies in the witnesses' testimonies. I mean, think of all the ways he could have answered. I'm sure Pilate wouldn't have even been surprised if he'd just pledged that he would never cause any more trouble. He didn't mean any trouble to Rome. Or if he had just simply fallen down and pleaded for mercy. I'm sure Pilate had seen every single one of those kinds of responses, but this man kept silent. He was silent before Pilate, and he was silent before Herod. King Herod, Jesus went to next. You don't need to turn there, but Luke chapter 23 records the account for us. It says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, But he made no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. So here he is, there vehemently calling out these accusations, and he is standing there without making an answer. And all of this was predicted by the prophet 700 years earlier, like a sheep that is led to the slaughter, like a... Sheep that is, before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But then, if you go back to Isaiah 53, I want you to see also that God predicts what the outcome of these things would be for the servant. He predicted what the outcome would be for the servant, verses 8 and 9, that these things would end in the servant's death and burial. But the even more remarkable thing than the prediction that the servant would face trial and that there would be injustice and abuse and humiliation, and even more than predicting that that would end in death and in burial, even more amazing than that is the prediction of the manner of his death and his burial that are predicted by the Lord. Look at the middle of verse 8. And we're told that of the death of the Messiah, that he would be what? That he would be cut off out of the land of the living. That he would be cut off out of the land of the living. And that language of cutting off is actually used often in the Old Testament as an expression of the judgment of God. So someone who was sinful, who was under the curse of God, would be cut off from the land, cut off from the people of God. This was the punishment of banishment or death. Like the, uh, on the Day of Atonement, remember that they took two goats to represent the sacrifice, and one was put to death and the other was banished into the wilderness. 
Jesus' death was a going to be a cut-off kind of death. In other words, a death that was a bearing of the curse of God upon sin. It was that kind of death. It was a death by which he would be cut off. This is the penalty for sin that he's bearing. This is the penalty for rebellion that he's carrying. The kind of judgment that, frankly, you and I deserve. Not the Holy Son of God. And then in verse 9, he also goes on to describe the manner of the Messiah's burial. Not just that he would be buried, but the manner of his burial. They made his grave with the wicked, and he was with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, other Bible translations have slightly different wording here. And the reason for that is some ambiguity in the Hebrew text. There's a little single two-letter Hebrew prefix on one of the words, and there's a there's a, a, I mean, a, a single letter, and then there's a little two-letter uh, Hebrew preposition. And the meanings of both of these are a little bit unclear, so it leads to a little bit of difference in translation. Um, but I think perhaps the New American Standard translation here really is perhaps most likely. And I'm going to put it on the screen. I want you to see this. And it's rendered this way. And they made... Well, that's not it. I'm going to read it here. And they made his grave, excuse me, and his grave was assigned with wicked men, that is with other crucified criminals who were typically just, you know, left up to rot and then they, the bodies would be taken down and dumped into sort of mass unmarked graves. His grave, because he died a death of crucifixion, his grave would have been designated that way, to be buried with criminals, to be buried with wicked men. And yet, he was with a rich man in his death. Why? Because, that's the different translation there, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. In other words, the unusual turn of events that would take place in the course of the burial of this apparent criminal, this unusual turn of events would be part of God's vindication God's testimony regarding his being the Messiah. That he wasn't, in fact, dying as a criminal. In fact, uh, it could have been this very thing, the very knowledge in, in Pilate's mind. Remember, Pilate was the one who ultimately uh, sentenced him to death, even though he said, I, I see, I find no wrong in this man. And maybe it was that, that, put in his heart a willingness to grant the request of those who came to ask for an honorable burial for this one. Though his grave was assigned with the wicked in the Lord's providence, he was not buried with common sinners, but he was kept separate because there was no deceit in his mouth. In either case, the bigger point is this, that Christ's burial, just like his crucifixion, just like his trial, just like his birth, just like almost every aspect of his life, his burial is just one fulfillment of prophecy after another, after another, after another. And Matthew 27 records the fulfillment of this prophecy. Verse 57, when evening was come, when it was evening... Listen to this. Matthew says there was a certain rich man. 
from Arimathea, named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And he went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. (laughs) I mean, what an astounding turn of events in fulfillment of this very prophecy. Is it any wonder that this passage is so neglected by people already determined that Jesus cannot be the Messiah? There is one last important point made in this passage foretold about the servant of the Lord, and that is how all of these incidents would be and should be considered. How they should be thought about, evaluated. How they should be considered. Look at verse 10 now. Verse 10 In spite of the fact, Isaiah says, that he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. In fact, he has put him to grief. So what's the reality? How are we supposed to think about this, all of these events? I mean, this this is the historical account prophesied 700 years before. How are we supposed to think about this? How are we supposed to evaluate it? Well, we're supposed to believe that this was God's will, right? This was the will of the Lord. And in fact, it was not only God's will, this was the Lord's doing. He has put him to grief. And that, friends, I think really makes sense of of the silence of the Savior under, in the face of these unjust accusations. You know, people talk about suffering in silence. And, you know, so, to some people, suffering in silence is just, just means, you know, you're taking the high ground. You, you're not going to stoop to their level to answer these silly accusations. But that's not just what was happening with our Savior. Or to other people, you know, suffering in silence just means I'm not going to uh, whine and complain. I'm going to be strong and independent and just take it like a man. That's not what was going on with our Savior. This passage tells us how to think about it. This passage tells us how we should consider what was going on. It was the will of God and it was the work of God. His silence was much more than just taking the high ground or just being strong. His silence was his obedience to the will of God, right? That's what he was doing in not opening his mouth. I mean, you think of what the Savior could have said. Think of the many times he left people in stunned silence with his words. And when he could use his words, when he could speak with the voice of many waters when he could have called 10,000 angels, he says nothing. Why? Because it's the will of God that he suffer and die to provide salvation. It's the work of God. It's the work of his Father. Why would he fight against that? You say, well, it was the work of wicked men. Well, it certainly was. 
but behind it all was the will of God himself. This is why the silence. You don't think rightly about the silence of Jesus at his trial unless you think and consider and meditate on what was revealed about the, what was going, really going on there. This was the perfect, absolute, trusting obedience of the Son of God to his Father on beautiful display for all to see who have eyes to see. But how is it that a holy and just God would punish an innocent man in the first place, one whose mouth had no deceit in it, who had done no violence? How is it that God would even punish such an innocent man? Well, that's going to take some consideration too. And that's exactly what very few of his generation did. Look at verse 8 again. As for his generation, who considered? Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people? That's what's really going on. But who stopped to consider that? Very few of Messiah's generation, of his people, stopped to consider the reality of what was going on there. The reality as it was revealed in their very prophets for all of those hundreds of years. The very prophet that we're reading right now, if they had stopped to consider with eyes to see and ears to hear, they would have known what was really happening. But he said, as for his generation, who stopped to think that way? The reality is, what is going on here? He was being stricken for what? As it, look at it, verse 8. He was being stricken for the transgression, not of his own, but the transgression of my people. That's what was really going on. Nobody thought that. Those who were watching, those who were in that trial, those who were seeing, their eyes were blind to that. They were not considering that. They were not evaluating things that way. They did not meditate on this text of Scripture in a way that would allow them to have eyes to see what, they were, what was going on right in front of them. He was stricken for the transgression of God's people, not for his own, for he had none of his own. In other words, this, friends, was a substitutionary punishment from God, a punishment of God upon the servant for the sins of God's people. We saw this last week. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, our rebellion against God by disobeying his laws. He got the stripes for that. He was crushed for our iniquities, for our guilt that deserves divine punishment. He got it. 
instead of us. He stood in our place, and this was God's will. God's will for him to give himself in the person of his son as the substitute for his people to take the judgment of his own wrath in their place. This was the will and the work of God to put himself in a place of affliction and humiliation to humble himself to this kind of abuse, to give himself to it, so that you and I might be delivered from the wrath of God against our sin. This is the gospel. And this chapter is the testimony of people who were once skeptical about Jesus, but who now have come to consider. And I want to ask you this morning, have you considered who he is? Have you considered and come to belief? They begin this whole chapter by saying, who has believed what he has heard from us? Those are God's people. Right? Hosea, in his prophecy, says because of Israel's sin and rebellion, God would call them not my people, but those who would repent and turn to him would be once again called my people. So here, he takes the punishment for all of those who are my people. Those people who would believe, who would receive, who would put their faith and trust and hope in the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1 says that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, my people, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're talking not about a natural birth, but a supernatural birth. Have you been born again into the family of God, a child of God through faith in Jesus, a a change of mind and heart, not dismissive, not distant, not skeptical, not unbelieving, but putting all of your hope in the Lamb of God who took the place of sinners so that He might stand in your stead, that He might bear the stroke that was due to you, that the chastisement that he endured might bring you peace with God. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him now as he stands before his accusers. Behold him. Picture yourself standing there at those trials. Picture yourself standing there the silent accomplice because it was our sins for which he was suffering. And you stand there wondering if he will speak. 
And if he will defend himself, and if he will turn and point to you, the true guilty party, and with his great, powerful word, will vindicate himself and remove any possibility of your being delivered, would he do that? Or would he silently suffer so that you might be free? Would he trust the Lord? Would he love God's people? Would he obey the Father enough to say nothing? To say nothing as they spit on him and accuse him and humiliate him. To say nothing. All that so that you might be delivered from the wrath of God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray.